Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And thanks once again to Acting Up. And I believe there's maybe one more, maybe two more, I'm not quite sure, but it's been a great series and hopefully there could be more. Well, it is four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time. Today, Vayan, working for National Sovereignty in the Philippines, Human Rights and Justice for the People. I'll be speaking with General Secretary Renato Reyes. Ronnie Carini, West Papuan activist, outlines recent events there and his visit home. Trump's peace plan without the Palestinians. Jessica Morrison, Executive Officer of APAN, Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. And first up, we'll be talking to Bougainville activist Vicky John, who's been involved with the struggle of the Bougainvillean people since 1993, and she'll be talking about all the work that she's been doing and the continuation of the work. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The people of the autonomous region of Bougainville voted overwhelmingly late last year in favour of becoming independent from Papua New Guinea, paving the way for the group of islands to become the world's newest nation. More than 180,000 people in Bougainville, a collection of islands 700 k's off the coast of PNG in the Solomon Sea, participated in a referendum which has been nearly 20 years in the making. Almost 98% of people voted for independence. Those gathered in Booker to hear the announcement of the results from the chair of the Bougainville Referendum Commission's chair, Bertie Ahern, burst into cheers and applause when the result was announced. And when the writs were signed, after the result, the crowd burst into song. There are many Australian activists who have actively supported the people of Bougainville through the years of the war and the deadly blockade, and since then. One such person is Vicky John, and I spoke with Vicky at the weekend. Vicky, it all began for you in 1993. Were you aware of the conflict on Bougainville prior to that time? Actually, no, I didn't. I was in Wollongong at the time, and friends of mine were going to go and work in Bougainville. And I'd never heard of Bougainville before, so this would have been the mid to late 80s, 1980s. And what they did was they asked everyone to come to a barbecue, all their friends, because they were going to go and work in Bougainville. 
And after the barbecue, they put on a film called My Valley is Changing, which was a propaganda film put out by the mining company. When I saw that film, I was horrified. It showed, like, the bulldozers knocking down, you know, all the forests and the mountain and everything else. It was like the Marlboro Man, the, the mining man kind of film. And I had a reaction straight away and said it quite openly in front of everybody then, what about the people that live there? So many years later, I was in, well, yeah, 1993, so about five years later, I went to a protest, Easter 1993, out to the middle of South Australia, not far from Woomera, to protest against the US spy base at Narunga and in solidarity with the First Nations people, the Kokosa people, about the, the US spy base being on their land. So I was there in support of Aboriginal land rights. And during that Easter protest, a man was walking around introducing himself and he came up to me and he said, hi, my name is Moses. And I said, oh, hi, my, Moses, where are you from? He said, Bougainville. And, of course, it was like, whoa, Bougainville. And then, of course, I told him about this horrendous film that I saw, the propaganda film by the mining company, My Valley is Changing. And it was from then that Moses said to me or told me about the war on Bougainville, which our taxes, our Australian taxes, were paying for. So that's when it was like a lightning bolt effect, having met Moses, a man from Bougainville, in the middle of the Australian desert. And basically that's where my story began and hasn't stopped yet. Did he explain how he came to be living in Australia? Yes. Well, thanks to Moses letting me know about our taxes killing the people, his people on Bougainville and turning his island of Bougainville into a sea of blood... I was just all eyes and ears. And so, yes, he did explain that he and his wife Marilyn and their children were evacuated because of the war that, that erupted on Bougainville because of the mining company. When was that? I'm not sure what year they actually came to Sydney, but fortunately Marilyn's mum lived in a suburb west of Sydney and they were you know, housed there, luckily, because they had, you know, they basically came with the clothes on their back and, you know, maybe enough suitcase. So, again, I don't know what year that was, but it was 1993 that I met both um, Moses and Marilyn and the family. That's amazing to be shoved out of your country like that, just with the clothes on your back. Well, yeah, it was, it got to a point, obviously the, the time whilst the people on Bougainville had protested against the environmental damage caused by the mining company at the Panguna mine, many peaceful protests over the years were held in Bougainville to, you know, to make it quite clear that the environmental damage is, you know, they can't use the Jabba River for fresh water anymore or the Karawong River anymore. Their gardens weren't growing, you know, fruit trees weren't fruiting. The dust from the mine site was causing skin irritation and respiratory problems. And so many peaceful protests were held on Bougainville but basically fell on deaf ears. 
the mining company, you know, just disregarded the people and, you know, had no respect whatsoever for the people. The dollar signs counted, not the people. Eventually it got to that point where the people in Bougainville had had enough of uh, this mining company and stole explosives from the mine site and blew up the electric pylons, which stopped the mine from operating and communications. And that was November 1988. So from that, basically, the war, the Papua New Guinea Defence Forces, with Australian backing our taxes, decided to hold an all-out war on on Bougainville by sending in the Papua New Guinea Defence Forces. Australia had supplied for Iroquois helicopters, which were fitted out with uh, machine guns. And, yes, it was a horrible bloody, brutal war that went from basically 1989 right through until 1997. You went home after your time in the desert. Did you then keep in touch with Moses and Marilyn? Yes, that's what actually kicked off the Bougainville Freedom Movement. We all met in a cafe in Newtown, Sydney, and I met other people from the, the other protest from, protesters from Sydney who also went out to the middle of the desert, as well as others that were you know, trying to let the world know about Bougainville. So I, I did meet uh, other activists there for the first time and have remained in contact with them. And, yeah, so that's where we started the Bougainville Freedom Movement. And how has it progressed since then? Over the years, when I think about it, there's many things that we've done to help stop the war on Bougainville by protesting outside the Papua New Guinea consulate, protesting outside of the Defence Forces offices, having you know protests where everyone knew whenever we found out about Papua New Guinea um, dignitaries coming to Australia, we'd be there to blockade them. I even went to London um, and met other Bougainville activists there from London where we had another big demonstration, a big protest, where we all went to the Rio Tinto headquarters in London and we all had, like, milkshake containers that were full of red paint and we, we went inside this very posh, you know, the reception area of Rio Tinto. You can imagine it's, like, pretty, um, <laughs> pretty posh. And we, armed with our red paint in our milkshake containers, we threw the paint wherever we could, the red paint symbolising the blood of the Bougainville people. And by the time we left, it was like a war zone. The police arrived, they arrested two people, and eventually those charges were dropped. Was it very difficult during those years to find out information of what was actually happening on Bougainville because of the blockade? It was very, very difficult, but we had um, vital people in um, both Honiara in the Solomon Islands at the time and in Giza in the Solomon Islands who were getting word straight from Bougainville and then they would send the details of you know, sadly, how many people had died and or, or who had been killed that, you know, that week or what was happening on Bougainville. And then those, the people in Giza or Honiara would then send that a fax. You know, we didn't have internet at that stage. It was 
fax machines were a big thing. And the faxes would then be sent to Moses. And then the faxes would then be sent to me, which I would put out to the media. It was very difficult because it was like there was blanket media silence with the Australian media about Bougainville. They were trying to keep it under wraps. So we really had a massive job to, you know, let the truth be known. Plus there was a blockade, as you said, on Bougainville stopping medicines, journalists, you know, human rights workers from going to Bougainville. So it, we had a massive task, but we, you know, we, we got there. It took perseverance, but we got there. Were some of your friends in the Solomon Islands also going across to Bougainville, breaking that blockade to take medicines and information to the people? Yes. We had quite a few people that safely got through, risking their lives. And, of course, us here based in Australia worrying whether they were you know, going to make it or not. But they came out with more information, pictures of, you know, the, um, oh, like bullets that had been shot, you know, the, the shells and things like that. So we had lots more photographs to sort of, you know, put forward. I and other friends who um, went over had a photo of three children holding a bomb, again, which is more proof about, you know, what was happening. And, yeah, so that was a way of doing it. I had the opportunity to go through the blockade to Bougainville, but I was too scared. I was very fearful. So I ended up just going to the Solomon Island, and I inter interviewed refugees from Bougainville. It was very traumatic. It was extremely emotional, and I cried a lot of tears. And I took paper, like, so the kids could draw pictures to tell me what they'd witnessed, and I took a tape recorder so people could, you know, speak either in their language or in English, which, you know, was later transcribed. And then I came back with the drawings, and which were, again, extremely, extremely sad, which were then put into, like, exhibitions, particularly on Human Rights Day. I forget what year that was, but, you know, where these photos were... Where they sorry, where these drawings were displayed... And they also went out on, at the time, we had a Bougainville Freedom Movement website, which was thanks to our London friends, and they went up onto that website as well for the world to see. All these years later, can you relate some of those stories that you were told? I don't have a Bougainville language, so, um, so a lot of it for me was watching, the, particularly this one man, from Bougainville as a refugee in the Solomon Islands who described to me, and somebody else was there who could actually translate what he was saying, but it was also his actions, what he was showing me with his hands. And he had witnessed the Papua New Guinea Defence Force actually use a machete, oh, like a, this long bush knife, he explained it, as I'm assuming like a machete, and he witnessed young children being slashed across the neck, you know, by this, sadly, this horrible man from the Papua New Guinea Defence Force and who killed those children. Now, I couldn't stop crying. I, you know, I, how, what, what, you know, it's like, here I am stuttering now. It's just like, how do these people, how are these people coping with all this trauma and this, seeing these horrible things, you know, it's a, it was, 
it was an absolute, you know, as I said, an eye-opener, a very emotional time. And it, it actually took me a long time to, and I think it still is taking a long time to get over, you know, all that sadness that was then and also with the faxes that Moses was getting. It's, it's terribly sad, Jan to keep on going but it's like you have to keep on going you have to fight for these people we've got a duty we're, we're you know we're, us as human beings must care about these people you know and stop these terrible atrocities from happening and you know because of a damn mining company an australian mining company what did you know at the time of the australian armed forces involvement with the blockade well with a blockade. Oh, well, again, it was uh, thanks to Moses and Marilyn, you know, educating me about the war on Bougainville. And going back to the Bougainville Freedom Movement, we, we were spreading out all over Australia, you know, and there was a, the, um, wonderful, I'll call them the wonderful mob down in Victoria, like, oh, what were they called? The Bougainville Humanitarian Aid. I've forgotten the name of them, that terrible. But anyway, lovely mob, let's call them the Bougainville Freedom Movement of Melbourne. And they were doing a lot of research about the uh, Papua New Guinea Defence Forces being trained in, is it Queenscliff? That's right. Yes, in Queenscliff. And so they were doing a lot of research and really coming up with, um, you know, the vital information about what Australia was doing to support the Papua New, De- New Guinea Defence Forces. And, you know, supplying them with their army boots, their uniforms. And, of course, then we get to find out about, you know, the bullets, the Iroquois helicopters, the bombs, etc. So, yes, it was, it was, I think at that, I can say, honestly, I think at that point it was through the Melbourne mob who did all that research. Do you remember Brendan Condon? I do, but I don't know where he is. Like, as time's gone on, people have drifted on to other issues. I'm sure they still very much care about Bougainville, but I have, I've lost contact with Brendan. But Brendan was a, a pivot in that group. He absolutely was. We have um, phone link-ups thanks to, like, phone conferences, thanks to Dee Margetts of the Western Australian Greens Party at the time, and Brendan would always be on those phone link-ups. So we'd hear about the great work that the mob in Melbourne were doing. We'd hear about the great work that the mob in Queensland were doing. We'd hear about the great work the ones in New South Wales were doing. It was truly, and South Australia, it was truly, we were out there, we were fighting, and we meant business. And I, I think I could congratulate everybody because we've done it. We're nearly there. We're, 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 the people have recently voted on Bougainville for their independence, and 98% have voted for independence. But now we have to wait. It's, it's unfortunately we still haven't, you know, stopped on that sense because the no, vote was non-binding, and the Papua New Guinea Parliament have the last say. Yeah, so <clears throat> I think everyone should be you know, patted on the back for the wonderful work they've done over the years, truly. Unfortunately, though, Moses didn't live to see this result? No, it's terribly sad, terribly sad. And there's others, too, that didn't get to this moment either. Moses passed away in May 2015. And where is Marilyn now? Marilyn lives in um, Booker, which is part of Bougainville. 
Um, she's doing wonderful work with her community, the um, Haku people, helping women who might be in domestic violence situations. They've built a refuge. They have a community library, like a drop-in centre. Yeah, she's doing magnificent work for uh, yeah, many women on Bougainville. Did Marilyn also put together a book about what was still happening? Yes, she did. It was a compilation, two compilations actually, of the human rights uh, atrocities that happened on Bougainville. So there was volume one and volume two. And uh, again, a very, you know, very, very sad to read. Um, they're like testimonies of the people, you know, again, of who've lost family members, lost friends and or witnessed the this, this sadness of these, uh, of the deaths. So, yeah, again, a very moving compilation of sadness, but truth. I'm wondering about the months prior to the referendum vote in Queensland, where you, were, where you live now. Were there many, or are there many Bougainvilleans living in Queensland? Yes, apparently there's quite a few living in Brisbane, the Brisbane area and the Sunshine Coast area, and who also voted in the referendum. I don't actually have the numbers in front of me of how many in Brisbane voted, but yes, the, the Bougainvilleans based in Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast definitely voted in the referendum. Yeah, so it was, yeah, it was very, very good. I think um, it was good to see in the media at that time, like the Bougainvilleans in Queensland speaking up about independence and their rights to independence. There was some wonderful coverage. Were you involved at all in the preparations for the referendum with the people? The build-up, perhaps, you know, more, more so on Facebook now, sending out news, as I have done for years, to the Bougainville Freedom Movement list. But, yes, you know, definitely pumping it, forever saying, cry, Freedom, Bougainville. <laughs> as you say, the waiting game is on now, but it could take quite a while, and... Are the people, do you believe, willing to wait years for the the PNG government to make that decision on their future? No, I'm sensing a. they don't want to wait that long. They've already proved they want independence. You know, 98% of the people voted for independence. And I think it's Papua New Guinea is really going to find it difficult to say no to the Bougainville people, but it does appear they're drawing it out. There'll be consultations, like a transition period. And, yeah, it's, I, I hope, like some of the media are saying it could take years. I hope it doesn't. And, of course, the people are ready for independence. They know what they want. Absolutely, absolutely. We've got like the um, mining companies who are hovering like, you know, circling like vultures to make a move now that the vote is over. But there's so much opposition to mining. You know, you will have the people who do want mining or see it as the only way of you know, becoming economically independent. But there are other alternatives to mining. You know, horticulture, fisheries, agriculture, ecotourism, you know, maybe small-scale mining. The wounds are too deep. They, they, the Bougainville people know what that Australian mining company did to them, killing 20,000 people. They don't want them 
and your activism will continue until the people are freed. Yes, I have to keep going, Jan. It's a, it's, I just, it's in my blood. It's, I just have to keep going. It's in my heart. It's in my brain. So I will keep going. And yes, so you know, again, cry freedom, Bougainville. This is you. You won. You won that referendum vote. You proved to the world that you can do it. And you know, it's basically, you know, it's their peace. It's their history. It's their future. You know, the referendum was one part of that ongoing journey. So, yes, here's hoping it doesn't take that much longer until the Papua New Guinea government lets Bougainville go. Are you looking forward to going there one day? Yes, I have been before. Okay. I went in the um, early 2000s after, well, when was it? It was just before, just after the peace agreement had been signed. And I was invited to Bougainville to attend a reconciliation ceremony. Again, very, very moving. But it was so wonderful to meet a lot of people that I hadn't met but had knew of but had never met them in person. So, again, a very wonderfully, wonderful time. Wonderful time. So, yeah, that was sort of another step forward as well, just to keep going, you know, now particularly not having met so many Bougainvilleans. Well, all I can conclude with, Vicky, is to say congratulations for a job well done. Thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> and we'll keep on going, Jan. We've got to keep going. Good. Okay, thanks, yeah. Vicky. Thank you, Jan. And that was Vicky John, who now lives in Queensland, talking about her long involvement with the the freedom movement for the people of Bougainville and we can only hope that the government of PNG doesn't delay the handover too long because the people have waited long enough for their freedom. Vicky John, Bougainville Freedom Movement. The Bougainville Freedom Movement, um, it was Australian-wide and it's still an Australian-wide organisation supporting and working with the people of Bougainville. The Celtic Folk Show is moving to a new time slot. So tune in every Tuesday at 3pm, starting on Feb 18th. Wear your Radical Radio colours in one of 3CR's new T-shirts. The bright new design comes straight from this year's popular Radiothon poster designed by Aisha Tufa. T-shirts cost $30 to pick up or $37 with postage. So drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Call 9419-8377 to place your order. Or buy one online at 3cr.org.au slash shop. 3CR Radical Radio T-shirts. Get one one now. Bayan was founded on the 1st of May 1985 during the Marcos dictatorship. It brought together more than a thousand grassroots and progressive organisations, representing over a million people, largely national democratic. 
The Secretary General of Bayan, Renata Reyes, is visiting Australia to launch Bayan Australia. And he came into the studio here at 3CR on Sunday to discuss a number of issues affecting the people of the Philippines under the regime of Duterte. I focused first on the establishment of Bayan back in 1985, as I said, during the Marcos dictatorship, which many see as being replicated or even worse today. I know you weren't part of that at the time, but what have you learned since of the establishment of the organisation? And who were those back in the 80s who founded it and what did they seek to achieve? In the 80s, we had the, the Marcos dictatorship. Uh, everybody knows uh, Ferdinand Marcos, Imelda Marcos, her shoes, the gross human rights violations that happened. And uh, it was inevitable for people to come together uh, with their different organizations and form something like Bayan, which is like an expression of the unity of uh, the Filipino people against the dictatorship and for genuine freedom and democracy. So uh, we were fighting for a truly independent Philippines uh, without any U.S. intervention, without the U.S. basis. We were fighting for land reform for farmers. We were fighting for uh, industrialization and uh, just, you know, overall development uh, for the Philippines. And uh, um, we were fighting against fascism. That was one of the key issues because we were under a dictatorship, a U.S.-backed dictatorship. So that's how Bayan was formed uh, in the fire, uh, in the crucible of intense struggle against the U.S.-backed Marcos dictatorship. Now, you were a child at that time, but were your parents part of that movement? Um, not quite sure. My, my, my parents uh, voted for the opposition. My grandfather used to work at the presidential palace, so I guess he was uh, pro-Marcos. No? But you know, a, lo- a lot of us, we were young, and we were influenced... Uh, by this outpouring of public anger against a dictator. And uh, we were influenced by people power. We've never seen anything like it. Uh, people uh, flooding the streets and uh, demanding the uh, ouster of a dictator. That was uh, uh, something that was uh, quite important and uh, such a thing to behold, even for uh, non-Filipinos, I, I presume. Yeah. Looking at the situation in the Philippines now, how different, from what you have told at that time as a child, what ha- what is the difference to what's happening in the 21st century in the Philippines? You know, the sad thing was after ousting the dictator Marcos, it's like we haven't really moved forward uh, as a people because, well, for one thing, there has been no real accountability. And uh, when there's no real accountability and when there's impunity, there's always the danger that history would repeat itself at new forces of fascism will emerge and uh, basically perpetrate the same crimes that we fought against no? uh, more than 30 years ago. So you have Rodrigo Duterte, who doesn't seem to be any different from Marcos in the sense that um, he flaunts uh, checks and balances in, uh, of power, uh, the death squads are there, the killings are there, activists are under attack, the media is under attack, even the church is under attack. Everyone who dares to speak out is under attack. So uh, it's basically the same kind, the uh, same brand of dictatorship that we fought against in the 80s. But why didn't it succeed in the 80s? It was a huge movement of so many people. What went wrong that they didn't achieve, they didn't keep going forward to no, get, so that it wouldn't happen again? That's a point of assessment uh, for the mass movement. But um, 
well, it's important that we change the entire uh, system. Now, we only changed uh, the president, but the electoral system, the social, political, economic system that gives rise to tyrants, dictators, and oppressors, that system remained in place. So it wasn't, in effect, a revolution. It no, was reformist. It, it, it wasn't really a revolution in the truest uh, sense, like it turned things upside down. It was uh, a rem- the removal of a, of a president, but the same ruling elite, the classes that oppressed the people, they were pretty much in power for the coming decades. And how long after that was it that you got involved? Well, I got involved when I was in the university. Uh, I had the good fortune of studying at the state university that has a very long activist tradition. So I went to the University of the Philippines. Um, It was the um, cradle, so to speak, of uh, the new type of activism during the 60s and 70s. So that's where I got involved. And uh, from the youth movement, uh, I eventually became part of Bayan. And how has that movement progressed since then, the new, the new way of thinking to get rid of the system? Well, the movement has gone through different challenges. It has uh, its ups and downs. It has uh, its difficult moments. It has been uh, under relentless attack under previous administrations. But the movement exists. Uh, it, uh, it remains. It has gotten some success uh, in different arenas, including the electoral struggle. It confronts a big challenge because activists are being targeted. I mean, that's the bottom line. It has become increasingly difficult to exercise your right to organize, your uh, right to free speech. It's been uh, very difficult to be critical of the Duterte government because uh, the tendency is either they pile up on you on social media or uh, some people get uh, cases filed against them or get physically eliminated. No? It's been tough. Reporters, lawyers, church people, social activists, uh, land rights defenders, environmental activists, they've uh, all, in one way or another, been targeted by this regime. How do you stay safe? We stay safe through, through our organizations, through the support of uh, the people that we organize. We try to keep a high profile, try to be uh, fearless, and try to be courageous in the face of the onslaught. Uh, but you never know. I mean, I guess uh, we've uh, come to accept the harsh reality that uh, uh, you're never really, really safe, but you have to keep going because that's what the situation requires. And I'd imagine over the years that you have lost friends and comrades. Oh, yes, we have. Three days ago, we just celebrated the first death anniversary of a, of a colleague who was uh, shot while he was riding a bus. He was assassinated inside the bus while he was sleeping. It's, it's been hard uh, because the extrajudicial killings uh, often go unpunished. You have death squads with their uh, faces covered, and you don't know who they are, where they came from. And the state forces in, in tasked to investigate and bring these people to justice, they haven't shown any real uh, uh, sense of urgency or importance for these cases. Are there other organizations apart from yours who are fighting the good fight? Oh, yes, we are many, because Bayan is basically made up of organizations. Our members are not so much individuals, but rather uh, organizations like unions, peasant organizations, student organizations, women's groups, indigenous groups. So You're the umbrella. Yeah, we are an umbrella group, so our strength basically comes from uh, the unity of these different organizations who are part of Bayan. 
Can you give some examples of some of the campaigns that you feel that you've been successful with? Well, Bayern was very successful in uh, booting out the U.S. bases in uh, 1991, and uh, I think that stands out as an important victory for for those fighting militarism and uh, U.S. wars of aggression worldwide. No? Uh, Bayern has quite been has been also successful in being part or leading another people power uh, in 2001 when uh, the Estrada regime was uh, uh, replaced. No, and uh, yeah. We've been fighting uh, human rights uh, for human rights. Some some of our campaigns have resulted in the arrest and the uh, conviction of known uh, human rights violators. But uh, we still have a long way to go in, in that aspect. Do you focus more on the urban areas, or you in the in the rural areas as well? Well, we're we're in both. Uh, we have chapters in the urban areas, and uh, we have members in the rural areas because we have members who are farmers who are indigenous peoples and who are fisher folk. So uh, they are the ones experiencing the most uh, attacks. They're, they've been uh, at the front lines uh, against mining companies, against uh, paramilitary groups. They've been at the front lines against uh, the transnational corporations, uh, the agribusiness corporations. So it's also uh, a difficult fight you know, in, that, in that front. Is Mindanao the worst place for activists to work in? for people to fight against the regime? I, I, can't, I can't say it's worse than... Because there, there, there have been provinces where uh, in Bacolod, for example, in Negros, in the central Philippines, they've raided offices, there have been mass arrests of farmers, unionists, young people. In Mindanao, uh, you had the, it was under martial law for more than two years. It's just it's the longest ever martial law after 1986, after the Marcos dictatorship. And, uh, yeah, schools are being shut down. Schools for indigenous peoples are being shut down. Just Communities re- are being militarized. Just recently. Yep, just recently. So, yeah, they have their particular challenges uh, that they have to face. And this is about resources, isn't it? Getting the indigenous people off their land so they can allow multinational corporations or national corporations to come in and t- take that land to do whatever they want. That's true. That's uh it, the, the fascist policies uh, are often tied to economic policies and interests. No? You, you want uh, they're they're exercising, they're imposing fascism on the people uh, to maintain a status quo where uh, the elite few are uh, the beneficiaries. So you have the mining companies, no? you have the uh, agribusiness companies, no? you have uh, those conducting oil exploration. Uh, these are these are the economic interests behind. Uh, the fascist attacks against the people. You said before that one of the, the main victories of the, the people's revolution was the getting rid of the U.S. bases. But what what is the U.S. involvement with the Philippines now? Well, the, the U.S. never left. The bases uh, were booted out, but they found new ways to uh, maintain their uh, foothold on the Philippines. So we have military exercises. It's a big footprint. It's a big foot, footprint because it's a strategic location for U.S. forces in Asia. You know, so it is uh, right there uh, in the middle of the uh, South China Sea. And uh, we understand that it has become uh, even more important right now uh, uh, with, with the U.S. and China increasingly in conflict uh, in the South China Sea and with the, with the Philippines caught in the middle or with the Philippine president trying to uh, serve two imperialist masters, which is a, not a very good idea, if you ask us. What about the review of the Visiting Forces Agreement? Is that a real review or not? 
a week ago, the Philippine president threatened to uh, scrap the visiting forces agreement because he felt insulted that the United States would uh, cancel the visa of one of the implementers of the war on drugs. Uh, so it wasn't really it wasn't really about sovereignty. It wasn't really about national interest, but it was more the president was offended that the government, the foreign government, would criticize the war on drugs. Now, if, if it's going to be real or not, it remains to be seen because somehow uh, some officials are backtracking now and, uh, yeah, maybe we don't need to terminate it. Maybe we just need to review it. Uh, maybe the implications are too much. Maybe uh, it was just a knee-jerk reaction. So if you ask us, we want it terminated, but let's terminate it for the right reasons because what if the U.S. decides to give... Uh, the uh, this person his visa back does that make things right for the VFA and we don't think so well we have one of those here in Australia as well I'm just Correct. wondering what yours how yours is different to what we've got here well it's, it's not quite different because uh, the VFA is uh, basically the same principle that guides the status of forces agreement with Australia so it would um, yeah it would cover foreign troops operating in the Philippines and Australia has for the first time, uh, been engaged in an active war zone in Marawi, in Mindanao, uh, supposedly training troops. So Australian taxpayers' money are actually being uh, used to train and arm uh, the Philippine military. And uh, we think that's a problem because this is the same Philippine military that commits human rights violations against farmers and indigenous peoples, against uh, Moro groups uh, in, uh, in Mindanao. So... Uh, we better ask our, your government, you better ask your government why uh, such things are being allowed and why taxpayers' money from Australia is being used for such ends. How serious have been the violations of the, the Philippines people while those soldiers have been in the Philippines, particularly the women? There's been a long history of uh, uh, abuse by American soldiers against Filipino women, children, especially during the time of the U.S. basis. But after the U.S. basis, since we have a visiting forces agreement, it allows Americans to conduct rest and recreation activities in the Philippines. By rest and recreation, uh, we, all, we know this to be prostitution, and um, there have been cases of abuse. So th there have been cases of abuse, and there was a rape case, and there was a murder case, uh, a rape case involving a Filipina, a murder case involving a, a transgender. And um, in both cases, uh, justice... Uh, we had to fight. No? In the first case, uh, the American soldier was eventually acquitted. In the second case, while the American soldier was convicted, uh, his sentence, we think, is not enough. And uh, he should have been convicted for murder, but no, it, it didn't happen. And in all these cases, it's always the Americans who try to have their way. and They try to have custody of the uh, offender and uh, you know, insult uh, Philippine jurisdiction. So the soldier wasn't actually tried in the Philippines, he was tried in the U.S.? No, they were tried in the Philippines, but they remained under the custody of the Americans. That's how strange the agreement is, because if a Filipino commits a crime in the United States, he doesn't go to the U Philippine embassy, he's not detained in a Filipino facility, he's detained in, Amer in an American facility. Uh, such is not the case with the Visiting Forces Agreement. Uh, American soldiers are treated differently, so it's a special treatment. Duterte has got a few more years to run, What's your strategy for those years to come? Well, the strategy is to build uh, as much pressure as possible on the regime to stop it from committing any more atrocities, for build as much pressure as possible to prevent it from 
wreaking havoc on the lives of the Filipinos. Uh, in some cases, that would mean uh, the removal of the regime through peaceful means. Uh, at the same time, there is this possibility that peace talks with the regime and between the regime and the uh, Communist Party of the Philippines and the National Democratic Front would move forward. If, if that were the case, then there's an opening for maybe more reforms. Maybe Duterte will have finally a legacy that does not involve mass murder and the surrender of sovereignty. So we will have to see how that plays out because it's never, it's never static. Things change in the Philippines uh, week after week. So the mindset of the president is also changing all the time. We, we have to be very careful and try to analyze the situation carefully you know, to, see what, uh, to see where we're headed in the coming years. What about the war on drugs or the so-called war on drugs? It's really, as many people now say, it's a war on the poor. Is that abated at all or is that just as bad as what it was, uh, say, months ago? The, the war on drugs is uh, continuing and the irony is that uh, despite, the thousands, despite the thousands killed, uh, the drug problem remains. So the, the government has focused on the demand side, you know, so killing the, de- the peddlers, the users, you know, and not really focus on the supply side, which is the massive uh, smuggling of drugs. Uh, recently, our uh, police chief was exposed as being uh, complicit in the uh, recycling of uh, illegal drugs. So how can you win a drug war when the main implementers are themselves uh, tainted or involved in, uh, in some way with illegal drugs? So it, it's, not, it's not going to uh, get you the results that you, that you want. Can you talk just a little bit more about the Philippines and China, where that's heading? You seem to be stuck between the two giants. Yeah. We're, we're, we're right smack in the middle of uh, two imperialist powers uh, fighting for dominance in the region. And the point is that we are not supposed to choose either one. You know, we're, we're better off free from both. Uh, the difference with the Duterte government, it tries to please the United States on one hand because... Traditionally, our armed forces is pro-U.S., and it tries to please China, on the other hand, because the government wants uh, to have so much loans uh, for overpriced uh, infrastructure projects, for bureaucratic corruption. So if you want to have loans from China, you're not supposed to antagonize China, and uh, we're not expected to uh, assert whatever legal victory that we have achieved uh, before the international community. So that's the very, very sad part. China is getting its way. Uh, because the Duterte government is somehow subservient and uh, dependent on uh, Chinese loans. What's the connection between Bayan and the people of Australia? There are a lot of uh, Filipinos in Australia, that's for sure. One interesting uh, thing that came out uh, recently in the news is that, did you know that uh, with the spread of the virus, uh, the uh, novel coronavirus, uh, those uh, Filipinos or foreigners tested in the Philippines, to be able to determine if you're infected, we actually send our samples to Melbourne. We don't have our own uh, testing facility, so we have to wait for uh, the samples to return from Victoria uh, before uh, a patient is indeed determined to be infected with the virus. We have, you know, taxpayers' money is going to uh, institutions that commit human rights violations. And um, the Australian government, uh, for its part, at least stood by a United Nations uh, Human Rights Council resolution uh, that is uh, critical of the human rights record of the Philippine government. Hopefully this year we get to have uh, your government side 
take the right side of history and uh, uh, remain critical of the human rights situation in the Philippines, at least so far as the Human Rights Council is concerned. But the grassroots people here in Australia, your connections with them? Well, we've been um, in so- we have strong solidarity relations with unions, with the, those supporting the migrant workers here in uh, in Australia. We've, we've had uh, many Australians no, show solidarity for the Philippines, some of them even deported because of their political activities and their solidarity with the Filipino people. And we're forever grateful uh, for Sister Pat Fox, for Gil Boringer, for all those uh, uh, Australian citizens standing with the Filipino people at the risk of being deported every time they try to set foot in our country. What more can the people of Australia do to support groups such as yours and the general, generally the people in the Philippines? What should we be doing? Well, you we should be standing up for human rights and uh, expressing solidarity, I guess. Human rights is an international issue. It's, it's, it's not confined to just one country, and the, the Philippine government has an obligation uh, to uphold uh, human rights because it's a signatory to international treaties. I guess your, your people can also talk to your government and ask why taxpayers' money are being uh, channeled uh, as military aid to a fascist army, to troops committing human rights violations on the ground. Uh, I guess uh, we have organizations here. Did I say that uh, I was here to uh, join the formation of Bayan Australia? Bayan Australia has been uh, launched uh, recently, so there is now this multi-sectoral formation for different Filipino organizations, and uh, we'd very much like to meet friends you know, who stand in solidarity with us on different issues. Bayan uh, in Australia represents the Filipino People's Movement and if there's a chance that you want to learn more of what we're doing do approach uh, the leaders and members of Bayern Australia because I think that's a starting point. Let's let's have this dialogue on what you can do, uh, what we can do uh, together you know, in fighting imperialism and fighting for a better world. I'm just wondering with the, the job that you have, it's a very demanding job but there is a relaxation for you isn't there and it's music. Yeah, it's <laughs> It's relaxation, but at the same time, it's... Uh, political. It's political. Right? It's, it's music, not just for personal ends. Uh, so I, I play several instruments, the guitar, the piano, and the ukulele sometimes, and the did harmonica, you, the, the blues harp. Did and you learn all those when you were a child? I learned to play piano first. Uh, I come from a family where my mother and my grandmothers were all classically trained to play the piano. Uh, me, not so fortunate. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, the music is such an important part of, I think, my life and uh, other activists' life. Uh, we formed a cultural group when we were in, in the university. And, uh, uh, yeah, for us, uh, it keeps us sane. <laughs> but at the same time, it's a different form of expression. I mean, I usually speak at rallies, but there's a part of me that's more comfortable just to play music at a rally and not even speak in front of the crowd. So most rallies or just a few rallies you sing at or you play music, do you play also in private, private well, places? Uh, yeah, as much as possible if there's a chance to play in a rally and you know, not just the usual speech. Uh, yeah, but it's not very often because you have so many responsibilities. They don't want you uh, uh, just playing on stage. No? Uh, but yeah, I play in private, I play small groups, we play in bars, clubs. Uh, we play in the picket lines. No? So, yeah, anywhere there's a chance you would like to express yourself and your sentiments in that way, in that form. Who writes the lyrics? Oh, we have friends who write lyrics. Uh, I think I'm more doing the score. So, I, 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 yeah, I've, I've done some compositions myself. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> it's really weird <laughs> talking about it like this. <laughs>
but it's an important part of your life. It is, it is. And uh, some people have noticed that if, if it's, uh, I tend to be uh, happier discussing it than uh, uh, discussing the uh, political uh, issues that in, in our country. Like they say, yeah, your, your face and your tone changes when, it's, when, when the topic shifts to music. But uh, it is what it is. Well, that's what music does for you, isn't it, really? Indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that was Renato Reyes, the Secretary-General of Bayan in the Philippines, and now there's a Bayan Australia. I'm quite sure if it's not there already, there will be a Bayan Australia webpage or Facebook page, and it was very noticeable. When he started talking about music, his face lit up, and any worries he might have, they all disappear when he talks about music. Renato Reyes. It's... 4.52 and a half here at 3CR. You could be listening on 8.55am. You could be listening digitally. You could be listening streaming or you could be listening as a podcast. But do have a look at our webpage 3cr.org.au which gives you the instructions of for people who are near a radio or computer to podcast and have it sent to your computer so you can listen to lots of programs, not just this one, whenever you want to. That's 3cr.org.au. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Six years I've been in Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, I was on the radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. brings us all together. Time. You'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know, it's been going for a while now, hopefully it goes... It keeps going. You know, like, it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family.
If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 I'm speaking once again with West Papua activist Ronnie Carini. And Ronnie, we'd like you to talk first about the issue of petitions which have been sent to the UN over the last couple of years. Yes, the petition that went to the UN, took by Benny Wanda, represented 60% of the indigenous voices calling for a fairer vote for an independence referendum. And that marked around 1.8 million petitions together, and Benny took that. And in calling that, they're also calling for a human rights fact-finding mission to West Papua and demilitarization of the region and also potential third-party negotiation for the current conflict that is happening in West Papua. Since then, the then uh, chair of the decolonization committee at the time, after the petition was submitted and it was exclusively written in one of Australia's uh, media, The Guardian, it was quickly uh, uh, watered down by the chair who received it, as well as uh, Indonesian government came out and called that there was no such petition. But a year later, evidence emerged that actually there was a meeting by which that petition was handed over to the chairman of the decolonization committee at that time. And since then, up until now, it has really shown in terms of Indonesia's aggressive diplomacy at the UN by which they pushed to sit at the UN Decolonization Committee, they pushed to sit at the UN Security Council, and last year they pushed to sit at the Human Rights Council, which they uh, officially start between 2020 till 2022 period. That is one of the outcomes that we see that Indonesia respond to that petition. How many others are on that commission, apart from Indonesia, that they could get their own way on this? It's many countries who's got blood on their hands or exploiting the legal UN system to benefit their own geopolitical or security or economic interests. And so we're talking the great powers in the world as well as those who are within the region, you know, regional powers are sitting in the um, commissions as well as those councils. So indigenous rights, environmental issues, climate change issues trying to be pushed at those global fora are facing lots of pushback and challenges. And so, like with the climate change, for example, the Paris Agreement has got some pushbacks by bigger superpowers like the U.S. And even though it's been supported and it's been agreed at that highest level, yet it hasn't got the groups to really be implemented on the ground and as well as the uh, commitment from the big powers for Green Climate Fund. That's an example, but looking on human rights in general, where like West Papua and Palestine and in, and in Rakhine State of uh, the Rohingya people, these are issues that human rights doesn't matter um, so long as these big powers sit in those chairs, business as usual. And, of course, most of those powers sitting in those chairs are former colonisers responsible for many, many human rights abuses. Yes, and those new emerging economies who are part of the non-alignment movement, non-aligned movement, 
using that position yet abuse those uh, powers in and the chairs within those um, UN system. And Indonesia is the classic example of this. Now, there was another petition last year, and this one went to the parliament in Australia. What did that petition say, and what happened to it? So the petition last year, uh, organized by the Federal Republic of West Papua, the women office down in Docklands in Melbourne, organized this petition with specific focus to get Australian government to take leadership on the issues of human rights, but also the right to self-determination of the people of West Papua. This is also echoed after the Pacific Island Forum outcome in Tuvalu last year. And so all of that culminated into Australia taking a more prominent role and taking that leadership and to push the issue which is close within its proximity and follow the example of Vanuatu government to take on the issue of West Papua uh, and championing it at the UN with a specific focus to call on um, a resolution to be passed at the UN General Assembly. And are human rights abuses part of that petition? Do you focus on that? The human rights abuses and human rights violations are the byproduct of the the cause conflict, the root causes of the conflict in West Papua. And if this cause of the conflict is not addressed, then this ongoing human rights abuses will just goes on. It comes down to Papuans calling for their right to self-determination and to address that. And we're seeing pretty much last year, between August and December, at least 84 prominent West Papuan, but also one non-Papuan leaders landed in prison and are now facing suspected prison charges. As well, throughout that year, the record number of arrests um, throughout Indonesia, not only in West Papua with thousands uh, being arrested, but also parts of Indonesia where students, Indonesian Solidarity Movement have come out, and we're seeing right across um, in Yogyakarta, in Jakarta, in Bali, in Ternate, in uh, Malang. These are, are big towns around in, in Indonesia, and even in Surabaya where the uh, racial slurs and harassment took place, which sparked the West Papua pricing between August and September. It seems to be quiet now, or is that just because the media can't report on it and social media is? What's the situation there at the moment? Since Jokowi took office in 2014, he did make a public uh, announcement that the foreign media and foreign journalists are allowed into the region. But what he really meant is that if you wanted to report on West Papua, there are regulations, and these are strict regulations that journalists will have to follow. Those regulations are set on the terms and conditions by which the government wants those journalists to go in. So there are a couple of instances by which um, Australian SPS, Mark Davis, who did a report on the Insight program, sorry, not Insight, but Mark Davis did a program on SPS, which talks about this journey that he has to go through, and he's followed, he's got security personnel that followed him in uniform and also in civilian clothing and using cameras that is right up onto his face and created this intimidation that he felt like he hasn't got that freedom to really talk to anyone but restricted to who he has to speak to or being assigned to speak to. And also uh, one of the New Zealand 
journalist Johnny Blaine, and he as well, um, has to go through this formal process, which at least 16 ministries that have to give him clearance, and we're talking like Foreign Affairs Ministry, and then there's the legal, political, and security affairs, and then there's the defense, and then there is the internal affairs, so domestic, and then goes on. And then it has to be approved by the police and the military, and then all of that. So it clearly shows that foreign journalists, if they want to report on West Papua, they have to follow a strict regulation to report. And so by that stage, it will take at least 12 months to get a clearance. So situations that are happening now in West Papua, you know, by that stage, no one is reporting. And so it remains an isolated issue. And last week or a few days ago, we heard about this environmental journalist and activist writing about the massive logging in parts of Indonesia. And he was arrested just because of the visa that he used. It's a tourist visa. And using that to write reports around the environmental impacts of um, the palm oil or oil palm companies in Kalimantan, parts of Kalimantan. And, yeah, he got arrested. And just yesterday, security and internal affairs minister have announced that he'll be deported. So either today or tomorrow he'll be already deported. It's Phil Jacob um, that he was arrested. It's a U.S environmental activist and a reporter for Monga Bay report on environment around the world. Is it also true that one or more Australian human rights lawyers managed to get in but were sent back? Yes, even human rights and just in general uh, uh, NGO groups and civil society organisations and even, yeah, they are all under... A watch basically and this was towards end of last year when the new cabinet at a uh, what I would say an emergency meeting in Jakarta calling all the ministries to just have a specific talk around West Papua and one of those conversations that came out is to now have a heavily scrutiny on anyone using visa in the name of church visit just an NGO or just tourist visa, especially going into West Papua, because now they say that many people are using visas of like uh, church visit and uh, tourists to go in and do advocacy work. That was um, one of the outcome of this internal meeting uh, or emergency meeting on the 27th of December last year. And one of those outcomes is that there is no such thing as referendum to be held in West Papua, full stop. I know that in the past, in West Papua, the Catholic Church has had a fair bit of power. Does that mean that members of the Catholic Church from outside aren't allowed in as well? Absolutely. They are not now. And and this is the shifting focus from the new cabinet and this new government that um, elected in May and uh, inaugurated in October of last year under Jokowi, uh, we're seeing that this is a revisit of the New Order era by which Jokowi is installing Suharto's personnel and people who, are, who served under Suharto back then are now being put into key positions. For example, Prabowo, he is now the Minister for Defence, even though he did contested in the national election against Jokowi, but then there was chaos between May up until 
August and September, which the issue of West Papua with the harassment case in Surabaya was engineered in some ways by Prabowo camp, and there was evidence that emerged after that. Then we, what we see in October was he took a very key position or portfolio within the government. It's the only ministry within government that has the largest budget. He is the one that has the backing of the government, and he can travel, which since October up until January, he has already made 22 visits around the world trying to increase the defense system of Indonesia. And there's already talks and criticism that came out of questioning why within this short space, this ministry within under Prabowo has already given this numerous visits to the world to access some of the most powerful defense system in the world. Reported in Jakarta Post three days ago, Jokowi just backs this visit by Prabowo and say this is part of Indonesia's defense diplomacy. And we have to remind listeners of the, the history of Prabowo. Yes, Prabowo is someone that has got blood on his hands for the Timo case, as well as in West Papua. He's been inducted as someone who has committed crimes against humanity for his Timo case. And at the time when he was being called, just after the Timo referendum process, he escaped somewhere to the Middle East, stayed there for a while, but now he has returned and he came as a hero and contested in the general election and now currently serving as the Minister for Defence for Indonesia for the term 2020 till 2024. So it's not looking good for Indonesia and the outlook uh, for human rights situation, basically. I'd like you to talk a bit about life for West Papuans who, for whatever reason, are now living in Papua New Guinea. Some of them have been there for many, many years, haven't they? And there were refugee camps set up to assist people who were escaping the military? Yes, the life of West Papuan refugees in Papua New Guinea and even in West Papua, it is very, very difficult at this stage, especially since Indonesia occupied the land of West Papua, there has been people, waves of refugees uh, fled across to Papua New Guinea, also as far as Holland or Netherlands. In the 60s, Till the 70s was the first wave, and the second wave was the biggest, that was in the 80s. And that's where my parents took my older sister and fled across to Papua New Guinea, and they reported that over 10,000 West Papuan refugees fled across to Papua New Guinea at that time. But then in the 2000s, there was just like basically targeted um, groups, so mostly student activists and families living near the border, fled across. So from the north is Vanimo down to south in Daru or Kiungam, there's still waves of refugees. So last year alone, we've seen there was people crossing the border, increased number of people crossing the border in 2019 after the West Papua uprising. At least over 100 settled in the, the middle inland area in Kiunga near Octedi Mining. But going up north, there is at least, yeah, quite a number of, uh, of people have crossed across, and we've received information that everyday people are crossing. And when we do some ID checks, it's a lot of them are, are prominent activists who have been now heavily targeted in West Papua, and so they're just on the run 
to just find safe refuge. But in 2018 alone, the Enduga crisis, by which on the 1st of December, when the West Papuan Liberation Army did a flag-raising ceremony, and there were some security personnel came to took some photographs. And what came out after that is Liberation Army chased them and killed at least 17 of those um, security personnel, which Indonesia claims those are the construction workers. What happened after that triggers this heavy military operation by which 45,000 indigenous residents from Duga Regency have gone into hiding and have seek refuge in nearby districts. It's reported in Wamena at least 5,000 Duga residents are now in seeking refuge there. And the military operation still goes on. So these are internally displaced persons um, since 2018, December 2018 up until now, 13 months, yet there is no uh, emergency or there's no relief effort to look into this case, by which Jokowi should have taken a, a more humanitarian approach to this and demilitarized the region so that then allowed those local governments and right groups to be able to carry out some assessment of the situation. But until now, it's not. So we are seeing these numbers of internally displaced persons, as well as people in, living like prisoners in their own land or refugees in their own land. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with West Papua activist Ronnie Karani. I'd imagine there's a fair bit of pressure on the government in PNG to try and stop those people coming across the border by Indonesia. Between August and September, there has been some debates within the Parliament House of Papua New Guinea, and the opposition have really asked those questions. If and when there's this humanitarian crisis happen just on the border, what will be the current government, which is under James Marape, do? And his response clearly showed this shift in the government in terms of the thinking and as well as their, their approach to West Papua case. Is that PNG will use every single toya, which is the currency, every last bit of the dollar, basically, that PNG has to support anyone who crossed the border into Papua New Guinea, and we will assist and provide shelter for them. So that is one big statement to be for our prime minister who just reappointed after the Peter O'Neill saga pretty much two or three months before that um, to make that statement. That shows a shift in PNG political landscape. And since then we've seen the governors, two governors who have been a strong advocate on West Papua, Governor Paul Spakop and Governor Gary Jufa, organized this massive rally in Port Mosby, especially um, in the aftermath of the West Papua pricing and the Internet shutdown and everything. And there was this massive rally that was attended by well over tens of thousands of people came down. And then they also organized a petition and delivered it to the office of the UN Human Rights Council in Port Mosby. And then there was another follow-up meeting after that of um, the outcome of that first um, petition they put in. And so we see the current government at this very moment, although their foreign policy is not reflecting the way the government is acting now, but 
definitely there is a shift in the political landscape. And we're seeing now a lot more support coming through on the grassroots and the movement on the ground. And by each of the governors, and this is going up to the highlands and on the north coast near the border of West Papua and Papua New Guinea are coming out. So it is also reflected in the Pacific Island Forum when Vanuatu pushed for a resolution for the UN Human Rights Commissioner visit, and it was backed by Papua New Guinea government. And then that shifted the conversation, the debate, given that Australia object to a time frame, putting a time frame for the UN visit, and it was between Vanuatu and Australia taking the space for up to 45 minutes debating. Just the key message within this um, PIF, uh, communique, and when Papua New Guinea came out and speak, everything just changed, and all the other island countries came together and support PNG and Vanuatu. And this was also uh, reflected in the grouping of um, the Africa, Caribbean, and Pacific states in Kenya uh, during the forum between December. And this is just last month, and there was a strong commitment an urgent call for the UN visit, and also while recognizing Indonesia's claims of the territory, they've also called for a, that there needs to be that third-party mediation process to look into the root cause of the conflict in West Papua. So these are the things that we can see that are happening on the regional and global forum, and PNG play that key role to provide that support. So at this very stage, uh, in regards to on the ground with the human, uh, humanitarian crisis, or so if refugees are going to come across, PNG has indicated that. Late last year, part of December and November, you actually went to PNG and to see your father, and you both went into West Papua. How difficult is it to get in, or is the, the border porous? Just, this was just after the uprising in West Papua in August, September, and so following on from there, I did went to PNG and basically just to catch up with family, but also just uh, to have more meetings with some of the West Papuan leaders. And there was the uh, fear of those prominent students who have returned from parts of Indonesia to West Papua and their lives are under threat. And also prominent activists who are now in hiding, basically for organizing those uh, peaceful, massive rallies in August, September, also just to check on a lot of the, the, the activist friends. So part of that visit, there's already many intended to fled across to, to Papua New Guinea. But then looking at the situation and if they do come across, then on the one hand, we will lose a lot of our key leaders because some already being detained in their engagement in organizing. And so if those who are going to go across, then we will be left with not many um, key people in organizing demonstrations. So basically try to think it through, talk it through with them, the strategy in moving forward and lessons learned especially in that uh, two-week period when there was that massive uh, rally where they organized. Going there, meeting them at, along the north coast 
border. It was good, really, to reconnect with them and discuss in, in terms of mapping out and strategizing for 2020 onward if such scenario will happen in terms of Internet shutdown and uh, phone cutoff and heavy military crackdown, what would be the uh, alternatives, what would be the contingency plan. And so having those discussions, my thinking, my feeling was to, okay, probably just to go in and just to observe basically what's actually on the ground. So I'm going in there. Of course, uh, it was following the traditional route of uh, my ancestors and my family, how they travel along the, the land on the north coast. And so going back there, uh, it wasn't safe, to be uh, frank. It was basically in terms of meeting with uh, key activists, uh, I have to make certain time. And also not families or relatives or friends know. Uh, it has to be someone trusted that I have to go from that person that I trust, and, uh, um, and then they'll take me to another place, and then there'll be another person taking me, and then we'll, I'll have the opportunity to meet with the activist friends, and then just for an hour or so, and then we'll just, yeah, disperse from there and go our separate ways. But um, in the evening, especially, it's, there's kind of like the layers of where people live. If you just kind of like a transmigrant, you just carry on everyday life. This is in Jayapura, office space open, um, going to the market, selling goods there, and it's normal, business as usual. But if those Papuans who are not engaged in the movement and because of fear or they don't want to be targeted by the security apparatus, which they have different layers as well operating. Those operatives are those who are kind of like be part of the everyday business as usual with their motorbikes going around or those who just kind of like on the phone following someone or those who are in uniform. So you can't really tell who is who, especially on the ground. Then those up ones that um, don't want to be seen as their pro-independence movement. And then those who are activists, those who are pro-independence where you can't then hardly see them visible. So that is the area where a space that I enter into is to meet with those activist friends. And the space that I have to be very careful, so when I move around, I'm making sure that the operatives, the state intelligence operatives are not entering into that space that I'm moving in as well. I was very careful, and as well as um, friends who are on the ground uh, as we move around. And so it makes that in terms of the movement not freely for many of the activist friends, as well as in terms of being able to come out and meet with friends and families are restricted to that limit a bit. What are living conditions like for these people? Well, in West Papua, in terms of the land itself, it's rich in resources. Yet the condition that the people are living is well below the poverty line. And on the national statistics of Indonesia, there were two provinces, Papua and West Papua, at the lowest ranking in terms of poverty, or highest in poverty, but, and as well as in health, as well as in, in terms of education, it's very low. And in terms of well-being, it's really the conditions are, ho- are not 
to the national standard. Yet, if the province received the, one of the highest budget, national budget, to the region, but it hasn't really goes down to the people on the ground and to see that actually what Jokowi, as the president of Indonesia, is trying to push on the economic development, it's not really seen on the ground that there are changes. And why this has been the case is that a lot of the, the projects that is in the name of economic development and also in the name of alleviating poverty are run and carried out by the Indonesian security forces. And they are the ones that also appointed people within their ranks to run projects on the ground. For example, the Trans-Papua Highway, this 4,000-kilometer highway from the west end, Sorong, that will come all the way right into the inland, where Nduga area where the Liberation Army stopped the, the Trans-Papua Highway from going on from there and continues down to Jayapura. So it's a long stretch there. That was basically that project was not even tendered. It was given to the security forces to run this for security measures for six months, and then they will partner with a, a, a construction company. But since they took on the project, it's pretty much run by the state, which is the security forces, the, the police and the military uh, run that. So that's one example in terms of when um, the government talking about the economic development and who really runs this project on the ground uh, are not even given an opportunity for the locals, especially for entrepreneurship of that nature, but it's totally different. It reflects in terms of living conditions of the local indigenous Papuans have to really self-reliant, especially those in the inland. Will The gardening would be the most um, persistent way of um, surviving every day, as well as those who live on the coastal areas or in the islands, fishing would be the most common uh, thing they do every day. But we have to look at who's benefiting from the building of this highway, Trans-Papua Highway. I'd imagine it's not there to help the people get around. No, it's not necessary, but that's the narrative that the state is really pushing out. But on the other hand as well, because of the Trans-Papua Highway is cutting through some of the untapped areas that it's not easily get into. And so this is also the fear that if this Trans-Papua Highway comes through those regions, then it is open for exploitation, like the logging companies will come in and access that area, as well as exploration further for other minerals that are, haven't been reached in this path. So this is why there was the pushback from the indigenous people, and they know that this will benefit the state, especially the security forces will be easy access to the Liberation Army, and as well as foreign investors coming in and access to the untapped resources. Were you satisfied with the, the time you were there, the things that you could do, the things that you could see, the people you could talk with? I was happy in that short time. It could have been a bit longer, but also because of the safety is not guaranteed. My safety is not guaranteed, so it was a quick one. But 
I am glad that uh, many of my fellow friends who've been heavily targeted and are still on the run are safe. And so, and I, I can be able to still continue to communicate with them now. It's, it's one thing that I, I'm glad that they're, they're, they're safe and being able to talk to them. Many that are behind bars now, that's the thing that I, I felt that, um, yeah, I could have had the opportunity if, if I had extra few days to visit them in other towns and just to say hello and to, to hear their story and how I could help them because at this stage they are suspected um, under prison charges and basically they are political prisoners, basically. And so it's one thing that I, it's still on my list that um, if this, this year provides an opportunity, definitely I'll go in and uh, pay a visit for many of the political prisoners. And also, Ronnie, the importance of keeping alive the culture and the community here in Australia of West Papuans. Yes, that is very important. And given with the 2020 this year, the national consensus uh, of Indonesia, it's, it's another 10-year ten, ten period. And it will be very interesting to see from the 2010 statistics. So in 2010, it, the statistics shows the demography of the indigenous Papuans are already minority by which it only represents less than 50% of the population, 48.3%. And so it's predicted that if the trend of the ongoing marginalization and the torture and, and the high infant mortality rate continues, then it will be way below 40% into 30% in the next decade. So this year would really reflect that. So that also comes with the language that will be lost. And this is one key aspect to Papuans where everything is now very much globalized and with technology and we're losing what is truly identified to West Papua. So language is one key thing that is, you know, we can hold on. And for me as a third generation born into this conflict, I can't speak the language and I can only use the language through music or, or dance and singing the songs that has already been written or passed down from generations down. And that's the only thing that I'm, I'm proud of here living in Australia and continue to sing those songs and uh, in language. And I hope that these songs will be also passed down to my two daughters and, and the children goes go like, yeah, the generations to come, especially that language can still evolve and continues to be spoken in different forms. Finally, Ronnie, the West Papuan program here on 3CR, which follows not, not long after my program, other people doing that program, do they have language? Yes, yes, because given with West Papua, have more than 350 tribal languages and like a couple of the presenters in the studio brother Joe Wally he's from Tabi region area he has his language and brother Erwin Blaskari from Sorong um, that's the west end of uh, West Papua he's also got his language and we 
now and again talk to each other and encourage each other that some of the folklore songs in each of our language needs to be um, taught and practiced and learned and continue to sing those. So in one way, we, we maintain and sustain those language in our own region, but at the same time, it also unites us together in that uh, national spirit of resilience into the greater struggle and the movement we, are, we as West Papuans uh, we continue to fight for. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that was Ronnie Carini, West Papuan activist, now living in Australia. And it's now 32 minutes past five o'clock. Hello, I'm Rory McLeod. I live in Scotland and I love radio. I can do the washing up, I could be in the garden, I could be in the car driving. Well, I'm listening to 3CR, Radical Radio, subscription radio, community radio, on 8, 5, 5 a.m. We do stream at 3cr.org.au. So you can become a member and donate money. First, there was Trump's $50 billion economic peace plan, revealed during a two-day conference in Bahrain, in June last year, instantly rejected by Palestinians. Palestine is not for sale. Now we have Trump's 181-page plan for Middle East peace, his deal of the century, a man used to getting his own way. It was announced on the stage with the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. His ultimate peace plan with no Palestinian support. Netanyahu facing graft charges in a Jerusalem court, his request for parliamentary immunity withdrawn. Then there is Trump, nicknamed the American Netanyahu, in the midst of a formal impeachment inquiry over reports he sought foreign help to smear a political rival. I'm speaking with Jessica Morrison, the CEO of APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. Jessica, I believe we need to go back to the so-called $50 billion economic peace plan announced in June last year before we look at the follow-on, Trump's ultimate deal for Middle East peace. Where would you like to start? So back in June, Trump announced what was the economic half of the deal. You know, this is how he's thinking. He's a businessman. So he's, he launched, before he even talked about the politics, he launched this economic workshop, which of course was roundly rejected because it's ridiculous to talk about the economics of, of how a solution was going to work without thinking about the politics. So he released that back in June last year. And a conference in Bahrain, strong-armed a whole lot of people in coming, but not many people did. There was no resolutions at the end of the conference. But what the US did is put forward a blueprint of how the economics would work with no conceptualisation of the politics and no idea where the money would come from. So it was this just kind of wish list of things that might happen. So there was supposed to be 50 billion US dollars being spent on these 179 projects, but no idea where this 50 billion dollars was going to come from. And presumably the US thought most of it would come from Middle Eastern countries and that's why it was launched in Bahrain. And the reaction to it? Oh, like it was just seen as dead in the water before it was launched. It was seen as ridiculous. Lots of very low-level diplomats attended and everybody kind of went, well, that was weird. See you later. 
how does that fit in with his ego when he's got a plan like this and that no one takes any notice of it? Well, the difficulty is that he's the one holding the cards. So he's the president of the US, even though he's, you know, looking like he might be facing serious stuff over this indictment. So he's the president of the United States and he holds a whole lot of power. And he's also used to doing whatever he wants and he's been able to play the politics uh, internally in the US because that's all that matters in terms of his power base to get what he wants. So he's not really that fussed about what people think because it was popular in two places. It was popular with Israel supporters within the US who he needed to shore up as his base and it was popular in Israel. So that's kind of all that matters. And Trump's very used to being unpopular, but still being able to get his way. So why have they waited seven months for the second edition of this so-called peace plan? I mean, some would say that they haven't worked out what they're doing. Jared Kushner, who's um, Trump's son-in-law and has been leading lots of this process, proudly announced this week that he'd read 25 books on the subject. (laughs) So one might have thought that they were still actually getting their head around the politics and given the US in the, the Middle East of recent decades, you know, it's clear that they don't really understand how politics in the Middle East work. They keep stuffing it up. So they're getting their head around the politics but the other thing that was happening is the political instability within Israel. So Israel's had two elections within the last year. They're going to have another one in a couple of months. The way Israeli politics work is that uh, you need really coalition government and the last two elections haven't been able to give a clear majority and they haven't been able to, uh, there hasn't been able to be a coalition that formed. So interestingly enough, there's a whole lot of, I mean, there's the, the hard right, which people call the centre, um, in, in Israeli politics. So that's, is, uh, Netanyahu's party Likud and, um, Benny Gantz's party. So there's the two hard right parties, one led by Netanyahu and Likud, who've been around forever. And the other party's a brand new one, really, led by Benny Gantz, who's a former military chief. We protested against him in Melbourne before. So that's the hard right conceptualised as a centre. And then there's kind of the loony right. And then there's everybody to the left of hard right. So there's there's the Labor Party, which is relatively centrist on policy issues. And then there's as there's a growing block of the Palestinian voters, or those who vote for Palestinians, called the um, Joint Arab List. And they've actually become a really significant political force. But none of the hard right parties will join in coalition with them. So these two elections in Israel, Likud and Benny Gantz's party have been trying to get enough of a majority that they don't have to take in all of the loony right-wing parties into a coalition. And it's a caretaker government at the moment. Is that right? It's continuing to act. Netanyahu's continued to act as the Prime Minister even though, you know, he hasn't been able to formally form government. But they're continuing. So Netanyahu's acting, continuing to act as if he's, he's the Prime Minister and he is regarded as the Prime Minister, even though he himself is being charged over corruption. And it's pretty serious, the charges, aren't Really they? serious, yeah. yeah. So, it's, I mean, it's, it's classic corruption. It's, it's taking goods and, and services and favours for political outcomes. And it'll be very interesting because it also in, involves the Packers here in Australia. Yes. Well, what does this latest bit, the, the peace plan, what did it say? How is it different to the first one? What's been announced in the last week is a proposal about politics. 
And we want to make clear this is not this is not a deal because the Palestinians have never been at the table and this is not about peace. This is about a political solution that suits the US and Israel. The whole document reads as an Israeli PR manual, like it's it's blatantly pro-Israel and very little regard of Palestinian interests. The word security is mentioned, I hate to think how many times. So this talks about who gets what land, what the borders look like, what happens to Jerusalem, what happens to refugees, they get screwed over, and really specific things in terms of how seaports might work. And So the idea is that the US has just, with lots of conversations with Israel, mapped out exactly how everything could look. Ever heard of a peace plan before that doesn't involve one of the parties? No, it's ridiculous. So this is not a plan. That, you know, this is not a deal and it's not about peace. So it's about the US's political solution. Yes, but they've got the power to implement some of those issues. The US has always been seen internationally as an important broker. They've always been pro-Israel more than pro-Palestine and they've always foregrounded Israeli interests, but never before to this scale and never this blatantly. So they don't have the power to unilaterally implement it, no. But the problem is who has the power to stop it. So the United Nations theoretically could stop Israel implementing this plan. And Israel's already announced that it's going to begin into implementing this proposal, even though it, it has no legal right to do so. So the United Nations could slap sanctions on Israel, as it does to Iran and all sorts of other countries that, that breach international law. I mean, there's UN resolutions and Security Council resolutions on the books for decades calling on Israel to re- withdraw from the lands that are occupied in 1967. That's where the international law stands. The US doesn't have the right to unilaterally change international law, nor does it have the responsibility to act. But unfortunately, what we've experienced with the State of Israel is that the world allows things to happen. And also the power of the, the bloc in the, in the UN who supports Israel, not only the United States, but some of the other powers as well. Yeah, they tend to be pretty small. But they've got the vote. Yeah, not in the United Nations. So the only reason UN security resolutions don't go through is because the US has a right of veto. That's what I mean, yeah. Yeah, so a couple of years ago when Obama had cracked the shit at Israel because they'd been so obstinate through all the, the talks and negotiations he'd attempted. So Obama did a very unusual thing and allowed a Security Council resolution through. They abstained, which criticised Israel's settlements, called them an obstacle to any justice and called on Israel to stop building them and in fact called on the whole international community to distinguish between dealing with Israel and dealing with the settlements. So Obama let that through um, and that was seen as a, you know, a huge thing but all they really did was abstain on a resolution. So in the United Nations the numbers are, are absolutely locked in in terms of Palestine and people are very clear you know you can't take land unilaterally you know you can't militarily control the people forever you can't keep bombing people like it's very clear in the United Nations. Unfortunately the real politic is that the US has been allowed to act and we've seen in terms of the responses unfortunately Boris Johnson in the UK has given a really lukewarm response but certainly hasn't condemned it shockingly Australia has welcomed the proposal Um, and the United Nations 
unfortunately has just repeated its old mantra, which is that there needs to be a two-state solution which is just and, and fair. So the reason Trump's been allowed to get away with what he has, I think, is because negotiations in the United Nations have been stuck for so long. What we all agree on, and about the only thing I agree with Trump on in the world, is that the status quo isn't working. So things are stuck and we've got no closer. In fact, we've got further away from a just solution in the last couple of decades. So the, the, the current attempts of things aren't working. So we all agree on that. Trump agrees on that. Maurice Payne agrees on that. We agree on that. But that's about all. So the US is using that, that window to feel like that they can just throw out all of international law and start to write the book again. What did the Palestinians say? Or the leaders of the Palestinians? Yeah, so the leaders of the Palestinians have said a thousand no's, that it's the slap of the century, that it's ridiculous. So in terms of the detail of the plan, I mean, it offers Palestinians 15% of historic Palestine. It says you can have your capital in Jerusalem, but kind of, you know, the mid to outer suburbs of Jerusalem. So it, it says that Israel gets exclusive control over Jerusalem. It allows Israel to keep every single one of the settlements. So all of the lands within the West Bank that are taken up by settlements, even the tiny enclaves, Israel gets to keep them all. It takes the whole of the Jordan Valley of Palestinians, which is the food bank of the West Bank. And, and for those that don't know the geography, it's called the Jordan Valley because it's the valley um, that runs along the Jordan Valley, so uh, the Jordan River. So along the Jordan River is where all the water is and where the, the best agricultural lands are. So it gives Palestinians nothing, absolutely nothing. It is kind of the worst proposal that's ever been put forward and there's been some pretty terrible ones over the decades. Um, so the Palestinians have roundly rejected it. Um, there was some beautiful civil resistance happened during the week of a whole lot of Palestinians that just kind of walked through Israeli checkpoints to, to go and till the land in the Jordan Valley as an expression of, well, this is what we've always done, this is what we always should be allowed to do. Because Israel is beginning to call, you know, see this plan as a fait complete. Um, and beginning to take what what might have been offered to them in such a proposal. And it's the right of return that's not in it for the Palestinian well, people. Well, the, the, the situation about Palestinian refugees is there. But it's not for Palestinians. It's yeah, so... You're not coming back. Yeah, so in terms of Palestinian refugees, it seeks to strip Palestinians of their refugee rights to return. So it's um, the proposal is that no Palestinians are allowed to return to Israel, that a number can return to what will become Bantistan Palestine, but they get to be vetted, and then really most of them get absorbed into host countries. And then there's a compensation fund, but again, the US wants to have a hand in who gets what and how. So... It's really a continuation of the US's agenda to strip Palestinians of their refugee rights granted under the UN. And Jerusalem? Yeah, Jerusalem gets given exclusively to Israel to control. Um, the plan actually has more about the religious connotations of, of Jerusalem than it does of the po politics, and it kind of gives the evangelical Christian perspective about Jerusalem. So it gives Palestinians no no 
uh, sovereignty in Jerusalem, no sense of sharing the city of Jerusalem. Um, and it says, well, you might have a capital, which you could call Al-Quds or something, which is the Arabic word for Jerusalem, which to me infers that they don't even get to call their capital Jerusalem. And you can start at Abu Dis, which is a few kilometres away from the old city, and just make sure you can have parts of Jerusalem that Israel hasn't already walled in and is completely surrounded by settlement. So it is, you know, you could say the capitals in Jerusalem, the same as if you could say Melbourne is the capital, but it's based in Broadie. Was it expected that it was going to be like this? Was there any leaking in the... the what, what was going to be? Yeah, in look, Trump has been had his cards on the table about Israel since he got elected. When you see the two of them standing up together, just about hugging each other, one's likely to go to jail for fraud. The other one's God knows what. Well, their God doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> you know, impeaching and doing all the things he's been doing. Yeah, and you know, and you think these two men, crooked as you like, are telling the Palestinians you'll get nothing. Yeah, it's hideous. Yeah, it's hideous. Um, so nobody thought anything good would come from Trump. Um, a few wishful thinkers thought that, you know, he might. But Trump has consistently undermined Palestinian rights since he entered into the White House. He's, um, he's a deal maker. He knows that if, um, he's going to keep his power in the US, um, then he has to have Israel on side and people who support Israel on side. So I think it's really cynical, in fact. As many people have pointed out, the evangelical Christians that support Israel, um, actually support Israel from the notion that Jews have to reclaim the whole of the of what was David's kingdom for Jesus to be able to return and then the Jews get annihilated. It's not, it's not a very pro-Jewish perspective. So there's Trump standing there with, you know, at least supported by this deeply anti-Semitic view and so many of his advisers are anti-Semitic and very clearly anti-Semitic standing with Netanyahu. So I think they're just two men who are wanting to keep power and they know what they need to do to hold on to it. So is it a fact that the, the ordinary Jews or the grassroots Jews in America are turning against the policies of Trump, but it's the evangelicals who have got all the money who are swaying him? Well, the, the evangelical Christians have been very strong for some decades around Israel and a survey done with the evangelical Christians in the US says that 80% of them think that it's their spiritual duty to support Israel. So that is clearly a very strong lobby group. Jeff Helper says, who's an Israeli human rights activist, said there's three things that keep the US's support for Israel rock solid. One is the evangelical Christians. The other, of course, is the military-industrial complex and the way that Israel um, and the US's military companies interests align. But the third is still... Um, so in the US, for many years, the majority of Jewish people have voted Democrat. They're progressive Jewish people. But, of course, for many Jewish people, in the, in the shadow of the Holocaust, it was seen as inevitable that you must support Israel to support one's own security. So certainly in the last two or three decades, that shifted absolutely phenomenally. And the biggest pro-Palestine group probably in the world is a group called Jewish Voice for Peace in the US, who are full of Jewish people, progressive Jewish people, who are horrified about what's happening in terms of the country that was supposed to be a safe haven and a never again should this happen has become a never again to us, whereas actually their views are never again to any of us. So absolutely progressive Jews in the US are getting louder and stronger and a bigger, a bigger majority. It's that industrial military complex there because 
Israel's been getting that military aid for decades and decades now, and it's not just a few little planes. It's no. the top-notch billions of dollars every year. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what do they do with those weapons? Yeah, well, you know, they're able to say they've been road-tested and all the surveillance technologies and their weapons technologies that they're able to say has all been road tested. I mean, it's a hideous kind of situation. I mean, the military-industrial complex is gross in the fact that it, it needs war and it needs human suffering to, to grow, but particularly in Israel. Where does APAN stand now? Where's your way forward? Yeah, so we clearly reject this plan as a hideous kind of slap in the face to Palestinians and um, the proposal is never going to get signed off and so we certainly support Palestinians who are standing up against it. And so what I guess we've got to do is work out actually what our next game plan is because while the US doesn't have the power to implement it, certainly the politics are shifting. And what we need to do is continue to build a movement internationally that is able to be the grassroots counter to the Trump ridiculousness. So we need to continue to build civil society. The BDS movement is a really clear way of the community being able to express its uh, opposition to the human rights violations in Israel. And we need to continue to build the movement so it is able to compel other actors such as the UN and the European Union to act in a, more, in a more just way. We've got the kind of loony right proposal and now we need to actually have an alternative vision which is only going to be, it's only going to gain momentum if there's people power behind it. So that's what we see. We see it's vital that we continue to build people power, um, that we continue to talk to the alternative government here in Australia, which have talked about having a really different policy that's far more balanced on Israel and Palestine. We've got a, an alternative government that might mean that Australia has a very different policy on these issues. So that's something to work on because, as you say, they might. Yeah, it's not concrete. Absolutely, and there's been a whole lot of Labor politicians as well as Greens and independent politicians who have been very bold and brave and strong on Palestine. So we need to continue to give political space to those who want to support Palestine. And again, political space is created when the people movements are strong and then there can be real change in politics. So that's what we're, we're certainly investing in. And of course, some of them pay the price, don't they, when they do put head up Interestingly enough, I think, I think the tide is turning on that, Jan, because Melissa Park was terribly vilified before the last election and it's cost her terribly her support for Palestine. But she's just sued the Murdoch press and won for vilifying her views as being anti-Semitic. They had a crack at a whole lot of other politicians after Melissa Park was forced to withdraw her candidacy for the election um, but nobody else went down for it actually my read is that now supporting Palestine is so broad certainly in the federal parliament that people aren't going down for it so even if you think about the worst place to be a Palestine supporter which is in the Liberal Party Craig Laundie and Susan Lee have been the most vocal supporters and both had a major ministry in the, the last kind of government so I actually think we have turned the tide and that enough politicians actually know the truth about Palestine and are willing to stand up together on Palestine um, that they're much, much less likely to be vilified. We had over 100 politicians, state and federal, just over 12 months ago stand up for Palestinian children's rights. So things are really changing and I think we can thank the People's Movement for that because politicians are hearing what the community says. Finally, Jessica... 
I think we need to focus on the, the term anti-Semitic, which has been used very powerful, not here in Australia, but overseas as well. Historically, this word has been used, anti-Semitic, has been used to describe a very specific phenomenon, which is racism against Jews. And I think, I do think those of us on the left need to be, as we're examining ourselves for racism and homophobia and all sorts of other things, that we need to actually be willing to look at anti-Semitism and check ourselves for that. Because anti-Semitism is weird. It's, it's very different to other forms of racism. And it often scapegoats Jewish people as being particularly for those of us on the left, it scapegoats the Jewish people rather than the capitalist systems. It says it's the Jewish people controlling the media, it's the Jewish people controlling the banks. There's a whole lot of weird conspiracy theories that go in, in into that. So I do think that anti-Semitism exists on the left um, in very small places, but we do need to check ourselves for it because I think it's very easy when there is a lobby of Jewish people who are powerful and devious to infer, you know, like to accidentally bump it against these narratives. So APAN's been working with the Australian Jewish Democratic Society and we're about to release a statement about anti-Semitism that says anti-Semitism is real and ugly and we must stand together against it. But this must not be used as an excuse to shut down legitimate criticism of any nation state. And Israel is a nation state like any other nation state and should be able to be criticised. And so we um, actually say that that people who are trying to broaden the definition of anti-Semitism are debasing the real anti-Semitism and risking minimising our uh, capacity to really see anti-Semitism because it's kind of like the fear that any mention of Israel is kind of going to lead to a slap in the face. Um, I was speaking to a, um, a beautiful retired Uniting Church minister uh, last week who has been accused of anti-Semitism by an incredibly right-wing group from overseas and she looked at me and she said, Jess, I, I've taught from the Hebrew Scriptures Every Sunday for years and years, I love Judaism. I love all of what kind of Jewish history has taught us and as a Christian, kind of the legacy that I've received. And I stand absolutely with Jewish people who are fighting for peace and justice. But because I also speak about Palestine, they want to brand me an anti-Semite. She's like, how could they? Well, they do. They do, absolutely. And look, it's a really powerful weapon. Well, look what they did to Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Yeah, and look, I think what's happened to Jeremy Corbyn has been a incredibly well-orchestrated campaign by those who don't want to see Jeremy Corbyn's progressive vision. So, yeah, absolutely. You want, you want to throw anti-Semitism at somebody. It's kind of like something that everybody's very fearful about being accused of. And so I think those of us on the left need to be really careful because absolutely we need to reject all of the false accusations of anti-Semitism, but I think we also need to listen to our Jewish friends on the left who are telling us what it means to be Jewish and in progressive circles. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks, Jan. Always good to be here. Always good to have here. Jessica Morrison, who's the CEO of, or the EO of... APAN, Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. And coming up in just a moment is Dunbar Law, so I'll leave you now and I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.